Welcome to the Freudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC. We're circling back around to a topic we discussed earlier this year when the ITRC launched a working group to take a look at the issues surrounding the use of biometrics, particularly improving a person is who they claim to be. To say this is a controversial subject is akin to saying water is wet or ice is cold. We entered this conversation amidst a lot of shouting that tended to overlook some key points. In particular, what my lawyer friends like to refer to as subtle but distinct differences. In particular, the differences around the highly controversial use of facial recognition tools and the use of facial biometrics used to verify a person's identity. Subtlety and practicality are often lost in a discussion of highly complex subjects. That's one reason why the ITRC convened a group of policy, academic, technical, and business experts paired with our own victim advocates. The biometric working group had one guiding principle. Explore practical biometric solutions that will help prevent identity crimes in an equitable and unbiased manner while respecting privacy and ensuring data protection. This week, the ITRC's Biometric Working Group released a discussion paper we hope will spur a broader discourse on how, not if, to expand the use of next-generation identity processes that include facial verification, also known as facial comparison. That's very different from the controversial facial recognition that draws headlines for its use by law enforcement and intelligence agencies. Here to help us draw the distinctions between the two forms of facial biometrics and why we need new forms of identity verification is a member of the ITRC Biometric Working Group. Linda Miller is the founder and CEO of a Washington, D.C.-based consultancy, the Audient Group. And as always, we're joined by the ITRC's very own CEO, Eva Velasquez. Welcome, Eva. Happy to be here, James. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for having me. You know, just uh, after the holiday uh, of, of, of giving thanks and before we get into the, the December holidays, we thought we'd take up a non-controversial subject, but we couldn't find one. So we're going to talk about biometrics today. Eva, why did the ITRC decide to wade into this? Because this is not exactly a... a a light subject, and it's not something that lends itself to uh, being easily understood. Well, James, they said the job was hard when we took it. We knew what we were getting into. Um, But part of the ITRC's mission is to look for solutions that are going to reduce the overall victimization rate. So not only do we provide those recovery services, we're trying to advocate for practical solutions. And when I was out in the community and and reading a lot of the media coverage and just answering people's questions, there was so much confusion about the use of biometrics in identity verification. And I was just seeing this confusion about facial recognition and, and facial verification. And it's true that facial verification is, is a part of facial recognition, but for purposes of this conversation, uh, you know, I'll keep those two separate so that, so that listeners can understand the difference. And we just decided we really needed to learn more because it felt very much like, like decision makers and thought leaders were throwing the baby out with the bathwater by saying, oh, we just shouldn't use facial recognition at all, ever under any circumstances. So we convened this, this working group 
of advocates, academics, and technical and business experts with this, this one end goal in mind. Let's look for practical solutions that are going to help reduce identity crime victimization but we also need to look at, it needs to be safe and ethical and equitable and unbiased. That's a really tall order. But we, we felt like we had the right group to have the conversation and at least put out our thoughts for discussion on this topic because we really think this, this has to happen. It's not a question of if, it's a question of how. I was in the room when the baby was born um, back in the early 2000s, uh, when we began to adopt what we know today as knowledge-based authenticators. I worked at a company where that was our business, uh, was a, a proving that people were who they claimed to be. And so from the early 2000s until um, just before the pandemic, that was almost exclusively the way that we we uh, identified people. We asked them a series of questions that were generated either dynamically or maybe they were static questions, but they were questions where if you knew the answer based on some piece of information that was probably in your wallet, um, that's how we proved that you were who you said you were. And then we got to the pandemic and we found out that lo and behold, all those data breaches we've had over the years made that wallet data, that information that we used to prove identities uh, was everywhere and it caused all sorts of problems. Now here, Linda, this is where I'm bringing you in because you were in a leadership position um, of, the, of the U.S. government when this all occurred and when there was the all of the various forms of pandemic relief. So my question to you is what did we learn during that process about verifying people's identities and the processes we use to do that? During the pandemic, I think we and the government learned that fraud actors were having no trouble at all using stolen identities to steal at scale. And this was news to many people in the government. I think this was a real wake up call that the amount of data breaches that had occurred to, to, to date it was over a decade, and I know ITRC puts out reports on the, the data breaches, they're massive, and all of that personal identifiable information was being monetized by very sophisticated threat actors who had figured out very easily how to use that stolen identity information to steal pandemic relief funding. And I think that it really came as a, a bit of a shock to a lot of agencies. What was the thought process about how to fix it? Was it just um, double down and, and do more with the existing processes or did, did the government begin to look around to see what else could be done? Yeah, the government began to look around to see what could be done. They looked, into, they looked to some of the private sector practices and uh, in some programs, they quickly started implementing um, facial verification tools, especially in the state unemployment assistance programs. Many states very, very quickly brought in vendors that would use uh, facial recognition, facial verification technology, um, because they recognized that they did not have the, the tools to be able to stop this particular type of fraud. I recall at the time, you know, that there was a lot of controversy around the fact that some states, they were overwhelmed, right? And they, they had processes in place and they stopped them because they just couldn't they couldn't handle the volume of claims coming in, which allowed 
you know, bad actors to, to slip through and they realized what was going to. So they sort of accelerated their, their plans to, to impersonate people. Cause that's really what was going on. Wasn't it? They were the, the threat actors were impersonating individuals as they applied for benefits. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. And particularly in the, the most egregious fraud we saw during the pandemic was in the state unemployment pandemic unemployment assistance programs where they were, you know, in some cases, uh, assuming the identities of every prisoner in the state of California and successfully uh, getting benefits on behalf of all of those stolen identities. And all, a lot of those people called us, Eva. <laughs> to... Yes, they did. Are you sure it wasn't all of them that called us? Well, it might have been. <laughs> Think back to that time, Eva. What, what, were, what were we thinking when we started to see that? that explosion of people calling and saying somebody has applied for a benefit in my name and I need that benefit or the other way, somebody applied for a benefit in my name and I don't need it, but I'm getting it in my name anyway. What, what, what were we thinking at that time? I mean, with the first, I'd say in the first 72 hours, because we were seeing clusters, we were, we were getting calls from specific regions and specific organizations. And so our first thought was these businesses must have had a data breach that they're not aware of because it was so concentrated. Well, what we learned later and not much later, I mean, maybe a week, two weeks, we were really on top of this was no, it's just that these particular businesses, because they have an HR department, their employees were going to their HR departments and saying, what's happening here? Um, HR departments were being alerted that someone had applied for benefits and going, what, this person is still employed, what's going on? And that's when we started to see kind of the scale of this, that, oh no, we're hearing from specific uh, businesses and individuals that work for these specific businesses. That's the reason, but this is happening very, very broadly. And of course we started to contact all the state uh, departments of um, unemployment departments and the, the various uh, stakeholders in these regions and saying, you, you've got to look at this. And then of course it took off from there. Facial recognition versus facial verification has been controversial for a while. Linda, can you kind of give us the, what's, what's the, the layman's version of why is facial recognition controversial and how is it used versus the facial verification, or now I guess the new term is facial comparison and how it is used. So let's talk about those dynamics. Sure. Yeah. So facial recognition, the way that people typically think about it is uh, sort of a one to many match where maybe the government, maybe a law enforcement entity is trying to identify a criminal or a potential criminal or somebody who they're, they're literally targeting. And so they're looking at a large group of faces in a database and to compare against, to look, to look for the one. And you, so you're comparing one to many, trying to find that one face that, that is a target of some type of investigation or some type of, um, you know, there's some activity that they are monitoring for which is very different from facial verification, which is a one-to-one -one match to ensure that you are who you say you are based on an image of an official document, a, a, an image of you from an official document and a selfie. So it's only two images that are being compared in a, in a facial verification, um, as opposed to a facial recognition tool, 
which would be a one-to-many uh, and more and more commonly used in targeting in law enforcement. James, I, I just want to throw in a comment here for our listeners who aren't as uh, technologically savvy. That facial recognition answers the question, who is that? Whereas verification answers the question, is that Eva? Is that Linda? And I've used that explanation with people as I'm talking to them, and that just really helps them to understand in very simple terms, okay, it's, I'm, you know, I'm saying I am me, and that's what facial verification does. It proves that when I say I'm me, I am me. Given that, why is this controversial? Why do we have um, very senior government leaders in Congress and uh, in states, uh, some in the administration, who are vehemently against the use of facial biometrics? But what you just described seems to be, it, it could be a very important way of, of reducing crimes of impersonation. Why, why is this controversial? Well, I think it has to do, number one, with sort of how we feel culturally about privacy and government using any kind of information about us as individuals. There's a, there's a lot of historical discomfort with citizens feeling like the government has information about them, generally. And then if you think about that information being biometric information, it's even the, the, the level of comfort is even less. So they're more concerned about the government having these images. They, and I think a lot of it has to do with, what, like what Eva was just saying, how are you going to be using this information? Are you going to be keeping my picture for a long time? Am I going into some database? And then the government is going to have this picture of me and they're going to use it for, you know, all kinds of other purposes. Like, so I think there's just a trust issue that when I give you my photo, that you're going to just use it to verify me based on my image that of my document of my driver's license or passport or what have you. And then you're going to get rid of it and you're not going to use it again for some type of nefarious purpose. I'm not going to be, there's not going to be surveillance um, activities that are going to be, you know, engaged in using my photo. That is, I think, the real concern that, that, that citizens have about the government taking this biometric information and it's why it's become so controversial. Well, and James, I'll just throw in there, this is a probably a, a hot button statement to make, but I would actually say it's not that controversial with consumers. I think it is with leaders and decision makers because they're concerned about what consumers think. But once it's explained to them what this actually means, I have not had a single person come back and say, oh, that, sound, that still sounds terrible when there's this reflexive reaction of, like Linda said about the trust, um, I don't want the government to have my biometrics. And when I ask them, do you have a driver's license? Yes, that's a biometric. That picture of your face is a biometric and it's already on file with the government in your state. And then they think about it and go, oh. And then when I tell them, you know, your face actually isn't a secret. You're wearing it every time you head out the door. Um, so a little bit of explanation about the the difference to get over, again, that reflexive mistrust and, and distaste, because biometrics is such a, a hot word, um, it, it makes a big difference. So I think on the consumer end, 
a lot of this is just about not understanding what we're talking about and not understanding that there's a huge difference between that surveillance state uh, facial recognition type of behavior versus the let's compare to what you already have on file and consent based, you know, ethical use of a biometric to prove who you say you are. And I, yeah, I just, I would absolutely agree, Eva. I think that a lot of this has to do with education, which maybe I'm going to preempt your next question, James. But I mean, the whole point of the biometric working group was to try to provide some more clarity around this, because I agree with Eva that a lot of times it's not that people, when they know what the difference is, when they understand how it's going to be used, and when they see that there are safeguards in place, they feel a lot more comfortable. And it's a yes. matter of getting them more comfortable. You did tell, kind of bring up the question, which was, well, what's it going to take to, to get this more broadly adopted? So we'll, we'll, I'm going to still throw that out there. What will it take to get it broadly adopted? Um, and what, what's the benefit of it? What are we going to gain by doing this? I know we all know what the, what the, the, the status quo is. We know what we get with what we have. What are we going to gain when we go down this limited use path? I think it's very simple. It's going to be easier for people to prove they are who they say they are and harder for people to impersonate them, even if they have access to their static identity credentials. So it reduces the value of static data, therefore reducing the number of identity crime victims, which in the end, that's the mission of the ITRC. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's no question that it adds a level of fraud protection and fraud prevention that you can't get just with data. And so it, there's a huge up uh, value to being able to use biometrics um, to, to reduce identity-based crime. And we're seeing identity theft-based crime uh, just increasing exponentially, especially with the advent of generative AI and some of the newer tools, deep fakes and, and, and voice spoofing and, um, and some of the better um, image, image uh, spoofing capabilities. And so we're only going to see this problem get worse. And as a result, agencies in the government, federal, state, and local are going to have to get more comfortable with using these more cutting-edge tools and being comfortable using biometrics. Uh, and I think many of the recommendations that we make in the Biometric Working Group paper outline ways that uh, organizations, whether they're private or public sector, can help improve the comfort level that citizens have with the, the collection and the use of this biometric information. I'm going to make an assumption that the downside is more around what has, I guess, been surrounding the conversation in general, and particularly the recognition, but in general, and that is, you know, the unintended consequences of either privacy violations or uh, the inherent bias that sometimes you know finds their way into algorithmic based tools is that really a, a concern here or and if it is what do we need to do to to uh, protect against that and to make sure that doesn't does not creep into these tools i would say that it absolutely remains a concern and it's both the, the concern is in my opinion is twofold it's one uh, whether people have access to the technology to be able to submit these biometric images, you know, that's going to require a little bit of computer savvy and, and maybe a smartphone or a personal computer and other things that not everybody has access to, especially government, uh, the, the, some of the populations the government serves, um, vulnerable populations, maybe um, people who are experiencing homelessness. 
and transient people are going to have a harder time using some of these tools. That's one. And then so there's an access issue. And then there's the equity issue, as you alluded to, James. We have seen that some of these biometric tools um, introduced by us, there need to be other mechanisms that citizens can use in addition to uh, what we call remote identity verification using a, a computer or a smartphone. Their in-person proofing capabilities and other types of data still need to be available for those people who either don't feel comfortable using it, don't have the technological savvy to use these remote tools, um, and or uh, they're affected by bias in these. Right. And I mean, that's the accessibility issue that this tool will be easy for people that are generally accustomed to easy. And we have to acknowledge that not everyone can use it. So those digital off-ramps are going to be very, very important. And, and that's for someone who it's not accessible or for those who choose not to use it. So we absolutely make the recommendations on accessibility. And, and those, those two issues, the bias and the accessibility, in my mind, it just isn't a reason to throw out the entire process. It's a reason to continue to improve it. And at the very least, get some reduction in the number of victims that are experiencing identity crimes. And then the privacy issues are real. Um, but we are very focused on a consent-based process. Consumers can choose to use this. And you know that's in our best practice recommendations. We emphasize not using the biometric for anything other than this particular verification process that the individual consented to. So we're hopeful that that addresses some of the very valid and real privacy concerns. But again, we're not talking about the surveillance state stuff. We're talking about a consent-based, safe and ethical use of this, this tool. And of course, in the white paper, we go into much more detail than we can do on the podcast. What happens if we don't do this? Yeah, I think that what we lose by turning our back on the use of biometric tools is uh, a really important tool in the fraud prevention toolkit. And it's very much, it'd be similar to trying to build a house and leaving your, your, um, you know, your drill at, at home and just trying to build that house using a hammer and a screwdriver and some nails and screws without the tools that, you know, would make that a lot easier. And so we have a very sophisticated adversary when it comes to fraud. We really can't afford to leave such a vital tool out of our toolkits. And that's why I think we need to continue to press this to policymakers and make both the public as well as agency leaders understand there are safe and effective ways to use facial biometrics. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with that. And I would just say to the decision makers, I think part of it, you need to realize how devastating this crime is for people. And it's not just if we don't adopt this tool, things status quo things are going to stay the same. It's going to continue to get worse. It's it's continue, continuously increasing in the scope, the scale, the harms, and even, frankly, the dollar losses for individuals, not just businesses, but for individuals. It's staggering. We are getting calls in the contact center from people who are losing not just tens of thousands of dollars, but hundreds of thousands, even up into the millions. The harm that is is being created by us doing nothing is it's it's too great for us to ignore this is obviously the beginning of a conversation not the end of one because uh, now we have put this report out to the world people are going to react to it and so i suspect we'll have uh, there'll be <laughs> strongly, more to say. <laughs> yes, they, strongly i suspect james i yeah. i don't think this is without controversy and we welcome the other 
points of view. Absolutely. Thank you both for your comments today. Thank you, Linda, for serving on the Biometric Working Group. If you want to learn more about the recommendations and best practices discussed in the ITRC's Biometric Working Group discussion papers, visit our website at idtheftcenter.org forward slash publications. If you think you've been the victim of an identity crime or you want to learn how to protect your personal or business information from misuse by identity criminals, you can speak with an expert ITRC advisor on the phone, chat live on the web, or by email during our normal business hours. Just visit idtheftcenter.org to get started. Join us next week for our sister podcast, The Weekly Breach Breakdown, and in two weeks, we'll publish our annual predictions podcast and blogs where we'll look at just how good our crystal ball really was last year and what to expect in 2024. Until next week, thanks for listening.